0: This is Entertainment Tonight. Here's the top Hollywood news for Thursday, November 4th, 1999.
1: The Paul McCartney movie. We're inside the dressing room and on the set for a confrontation between Paul and John Lennon. There's a new Paul McCartney movie as Aiden Quinn becomes the singer in the new VH1 film, Two of Us. We were there as Quinn donned a shaggy wig and brown contact lenses. The film is about what might have happened if Paul and John Lennon had spent a day together in 1976, six years after the Fab Four broke up.
0: It's uh, a film that's inspired by the lives of these two men. The more I learn about Paul McCartney, the more fascinating the man becomes.
1: And try this one on for size. Paul McCartney, action star. Sir Paul has reportedly signed up to guest star opposite Pamela Anderson Lee in her series VIP.
2: Welcome to the new year of When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan.
0: I'm John Stone. Happy 2023.
2: Yay. First off, just a little bit of news here. Paul has announced on the McCartney site that he is in the studio again. To quote, well, I'm going on holiday. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And then I'm doing some more recording. I've been recording with a couple of people, so I'm looking forward to doing even more. I started working with this producer called Andrew Watt, and he's very interesting. We've had some fun. Beyond that, I don't have anything massive planned, well, at the moment. So it's good to know that Paul's in the studio and that he's bringing in other people, so it's not just something that he's probably going to throw into the archives. Right. Alright, so as we're recording this, it's January 2nd, it's Get Back Day 1, but we're not going to be talking about Get Back, but we will be talking about uh, one of the projects for one of the major players, Michael Lindsay-Hogg.
0: Yes, he's back. (laughs) Or, uh, he was back 20 years ago.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he was back in 2000. Uh, He took on what was then a new idea, VH1 actually was kind of looking forward to the future we're in now they were making their own movies and one of the first three or four films they made was two of us a film starring uh, aiden quinn and jared harris aiden quinn is a fairly big name and remains so jared harris uh, he went on to be in Mad Men.
0: <laughs> well there you go you're speaking of jared and and I kept looking at the film, thinking, "I think he was cast because of his nose. His nose is kind of John's perfectly,
2: not having to use prosthetics."
0: Exactly. I mean, they have a similar nose. It, it was just funny.
2: <laughs> oh, and he is a good actor, you know. Yeah. And we'll talk about that as we talk about the course of this film. But the nose certainly helped him.
0: Yes. Yes. Certain shots were just like, "Wow, that's really close."
2: And neither one of them are particularly close in appearance to either John or Paul at any time in their life.
0: No. No, not really, but enough.
2: To avoid being distracting.
0: Yes, and there were a couple of shots that I thought, well, that looks like Paul. The hairstyle, the way he was turned, you know. So, I mean, it was close enough.
2: There's a couple places where the resemblance is better than in others. But, you know, let's start off with the actual events of April 24th, 1976. The real skinny. So throughout late 1975 into 1976, you had Sid Bernstein and others making these sort of ridiculous offers to the Beatles uh, to, oh, you know, do one show, play four songs, and I'm going to donate all of this money to... A, B, C, or D. Pick your favorite charity.
0: Right. And I have to give them credit because they certainly grasped the feeling of Beatle fans. We all wanted them to do something, anything. We want to see them. Oh, my gosh. It sometimes seems like EMI and Capital didn't have the same belief.
2: The record company just wanted to make money off of it.
0: Well, I think Sid Bernstein did, too, to a degree, but he had a belief in, hey, people want this. You know, this this would be something that will work. And here in the States, it was rock and roll and love songs and 20 Beatle ballads, and there wasn't anything new.
2: That's kind of what I'm referring to. But so what came out of that, the that would be the first year of what was then known as NBC's Saturday Night. Right. Lauren Michaels, who's now good buddies with Paul, actually, somewhere along the way during that first year, came up with this idea.
0: Yeah. And who would have thought that, you know, Paul McCartney would be in the five-timers club?
2: Well, <laughs> well he hasn't hosted five <laughs> times. He's been on the show five times. but
0: Yes. I think that's what he referred to when he was uh, there last
2: but no, he, he's not going to get a jacket because he's actually never hosted, which is something that I really would actually like to see. He's done comedy skits, but and he's done enough to more or less be the equivalent of having hosted, but he's never really done it. True. We get to the date of uh, April 24th, 1976. Paul was getting ready for the Wings Over America tour, and, and actually the only reason that this story could and did happen was because, well, Jimmy broke his... Is pinky?
0: Yes, one of his fingers. Yeah,
2: in Paris, putting off the beginning of the Wings Over America tour. Yes, so Paul had a little free time, and he came over to the states. You know, as he was wont to do, he was hanging in New York and doing some random promotion. And on that day, he and Linda decided to go up to the Dakota and pay a visit and
0: do it unannounced. The Lennons were not expecting company.
2: No. So, you know, they pulled up they went to the dorm and the, then the doorman said, Oh, okay, yeah, you know. Yeah, I I think they'll they'll see you and you know, they went upstairs and they spent the afternoon with John, Yoko, and Sean.
0: They were seen. You know, and that's the actuality of it. They stayed more than the afternoon because they saw Saturday Night Live that night.
2: Yeah, exactly well, I mean they were there at least from probably late afternoon early evening all the way through to uh well i mean we know they left during the showing of the film after snl
0: that was the hg wells
2: film wasn't it time machine yes time machine yeah that's a good film yeah it's a good film and it's one that they would have been familiar with so you know they, they hung out they were there all day raquel Welsh was the host of snl that week Right. And John Sebastian was a musical guest. So that's kind of why they decided, oh, we'll stick around for this. You know, maybe it was getting a little bit late. I guess the girls were with Rose.
0: Right. It, it, it was the last show of the season, I believe.
2: I, there may have been one or two more, but there was definitely not a show the next week. And not only was there not a show, there was not a rerun because this was the first season. NBC didn't regularly show SNL reruns at that point, which is actually going to be kind of important here in a minute. <laughs> They hung out, they, they were watching SNL, they were, they were bantering back and forth and laughing, and, and then this offer comes up, you know, Lauren Michaels. And this was just after Weekend Update, so, you know, 11.15, 11. 11.20, 11. closer to 11.30. Right. Half hour left in the show. He makes an offer to the Beatles, and he shows off this check for $3,000.
0: And I have to jump ahead to a degree. In this film they actually play that original broadcast. I mean, th- that part. So it's not scripted.
2: Although they get that wrong, too, because before it, they showed, maybe just because they wanted to show a John Belushi clip, they showed Samurai Taylor with Buck Henry, which was much earlier in the year. Right. But, oh, well.
0: But that may be a f- kind of a famous skit. I mean, some people would know that. Oh, yeah. So, like edited that in or that's just the way michael lindsey hogg likes to edit
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's something we've learned from let it be so john and paul they actually said you know hey wait a minute we can do this let's go ahead and actually make this happen yeah we can call a taxi we can we can get down to the studio and we can maybe even play a little bit
0: yeah we could do Homeward Bound, and here comes the sun.
2: <laughs> oh, anyway. And so for whatever reason, it all just kind of petered out. You know, John says, well, you know, we we thought about it, we were going to do it, and then we just decided we were really too tired. Right. And the TV
0: guide says, time machine's
2: coming on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yoko wants to watch that. She hasn't seen it. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah.
2: So, anyway, uh, and then kind of the postscript to John's version of the story is that Paul came by again the next day, and that would be the last time they would ever see each other face-to-face. John kind of, he'd had a bad day with Sean, and it's like, you know, look, just phone me up first. Dropping by is not cool. We're not 17 anymore.
0: Right. And, you know, guests, they don't usually come back the next day. They come, they have a visit. I mean, unless you have something planned, you know, she's just, hey, we had a great visit. But then to show up again the next day is like,
2: okay, now you're being, you're being creepy. <laughs> it's a little bit weird. And yeah. now we come to Paul's version of the story. Paul has somewhere along the way decided that, oh, I wasn't actually there that night. We were talking on the phone, and then I was actually there the next week, and that's when we almost decided to go down. Well, that makes no sense, Paul. The Hmm. next week was the... Paul started in Fort Worth on the Monday. He was setting up house by Sunday night. Yeah. I really doubt that uh, he would have been there in New York City on the day before. And there was no SNL to make them sit down and watch the TV. So it's like, is Paul genuinely just remembering or is he spending a yarn for some reason
0: uh you know I don't know I think it was that was the interviewer he said and I wrote all of yellow submarine
2: <laughs> so um, i'm going to go with it was actually that night
0: yeah which I is still so.
2: it, it's an amazing coincidence
0: <laughs> it, it is you know it's it's the universe playing games yeah, it is an amazing coincidence, and I know you—you uh, you don't like to jump ahead too much, but I, I thought in this film, John's reaction to this skit was exactly the way he probably would have.
2: They have some comments to what Lauren Michaels says, and yes. uh, those feel very real. Yeah,
0: yes, particularly when you know the setup was just, we want you to come on and we'll pay you and. And they were both giggling at that, you know, but then when Lord Michaels gives the amount, you know Lennon kind of loses it and I'm just thinking he he would appreciate that part of it. I believe.
2: Oh absolutely and the point about the time machine uh, it's important because the time machine aired on that TV night <laughs> in New York immediately after the April 24th Saturday Night Live. Paul has actually been quoted saying that they were sitting there watching the time machine as he and Linda left for the evening. So it's not the next week. Right. Besides everything else. So into the film, the film starts off with Paul McCartney or Aiden Quinn's version of Paul McCartney. Is that a Liverpool scarf he's wearing? I can't say, but yeah, it kind of looks that way. I mean, it's a register, which is funny because the McCartneys are Everton supporters. (laughs) Right. So you you see Paul on a uh, recreated talk show with somebody named Tom.
0: Let me ask you, Paul McCartney. Is there any chance of the Beatles getting back together?
2: Well, Tom,
3: you never know.
2: Probably a an offhanded reference to Tom Snyder. Yeah, it could be. It
0: did look like the tomorrow set.
2: So, and the guy didn't look like Tom Snyder at all either. The most garish possible talk show set one could imagine. <laughs> right. It actually looked more like a game show set to me,
0: or a, a Good Morning show. You know, it was just it wasn't the set at all, and he didn't go ha 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 ha. You know,
2: <laughs> well. Tom Snyder, another another big SNL characterization. Yeah, yes.
0: Uh, We'd just like to elaborate, but we're going to be talking to the Coca-Cola people today. And uh, <laughs> I can remember when I was working in, in radio in Philadelphia, Radio News, uh, we always had a joke about Coca-Cola. There was a, a double entendre thing happening about Coke. Uh, we'll be back in a moment.
2: The interview ends with, of course, Are the Beatles ever getting back together? And Paul, doing what Paul always does, well, you never know.
0: Yeah, obviously some of the script is taken from the interviews. I've heard that comment.
2: For sure. I mean, it's a lot like when we were talking about Nowhere Boy. They just take so much and lift dialogue directly from things that John or Paul have actually said through the years. Right. So we cut to the Dakota Jared Harris's Lennon looking a little bit lost, I would say. He's talking to somebody about Yoko taking Sean off to go and buy a cow. Buy a cow, right. Yeah, dialogue which would show up later. When you come over next time, don't sell a cow. Spend some time with me and Sean. you like it,
0: get in the water.
2: (laughs) Right. Not so much a 1976 thing, but... The whole characterization of both John and Yoko is just a little bit forward in terms of where they would be in reality. Right. Where's Yoko? Off buying a cow.
1: She won't be home till tomorrow. Bunch of twig, brown rice, dandelion. Whatever.
3: Whatever. What about
1: Sean? He's sleeping in California where the cows are. Oh, that's a drag. I was hoping to see him.
2: We see Paul leaving. He's sitting in his limo. He hears that Silly Love Songs is the number one song. And then they play Peter Frampton's Show Me The Way. Interesting thing about that is it was actually filmed and cut to Silly Love Songs. But MPL would not give them the sync license for it. Well,
0: they'd read the script and it was like, "Eh." and this is Michael Lindsay (laughs) Hogg.
2: But Paul said he liked the film. On several occasions, he said (laughs) he liked the film. His most recent interview about it, he said that it was kind of the ideal version of how that meeting might have gone. Right. Well, maybe it was Neil. (laughs) Neil's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah, Neil was still with us. (laughs) Paul hears this and tells his driver to go through the park, which leads to him showing up at the Dakota. Right. The doorman and the elevator operator are very bemused at Paul showing up at the Dakota.
0: Yes. And the the whole little exchange between John and the concierge is uh, amusing.
1: Help me, I'm trapped inside this little box. Good afternoon, sir. You have a visitor? Friend or foe? I believe he is an old friend, sir. He says he wishes to surprise you. Well, how do I know he is who he claims to be? I I can vouch for him, sir. He is a familiar face. sir. Check him for drugs and send him up. Take Mr. McCartney up to see Mr. Lennon. <laughs> Paul goes
2: up again, a deviation from reality. The elevator actually opened right into the Dakota, into their apartment. Cause that's the way those elevators work in the Dakota. Ah. So you, you do need the elevator operator to get you up. But once you're up, you're in the apartment. Yeah, right. There's no door to knock on. <laughs> <laughs> There's no door to knock on. Um, I
0: noticed the whole situation where John is kind of preparing himself for meeting. You know, he's got his hand on his face, and it's just held there. Not that his face is in his hands. There's a specific position to his hands over his face, and he holds it there for, in the film, long enough
2: to make a point. Yeah, for sure. Paul shows up. John referred to them as the ghost of Christmas Pass. <laughs> Aren't you one of them? <laughs> right. Again, something else which frequently came up in their interviews. They all
0: sometimes referred to the Beatles as them. You know. I mean even to the point of saying Beatle Harold, Beatle Ted, you know.
2: Well, and that's yeah, we see that in the Imagine film. Right. Have you seen much of the Beatles lately, John? <laughs>
0: Right. So they did that. So, those other guys. Uh, the,
2: the writer certainly did his homework. Yeah. He just chose to deviate from reality. And in fact, they tell you right up front, hey, this thing isn't real. And, you know, we know it's not real, but yeah. it's worth mentioning. <laughs> when it deviates, there's some things that are story related, which, okay, great, it doesn't matter that it deviates from reality. But some of this is a little bit, well, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I noticed there's sometimes that, they dealt with the things that had perhaps generated some press and not necessarily the reality. I mean, I always thought it was funny that people thought it was weird that John called Yoko mother. I mean, it's like, I call, you know, my wife mom all the time. The kids they understand and it, I just don't think it, it it's that odd. But it was in the press that was supposedly an indication of how strange. Well people were looking
2: for that, you know. Yes. People wanted John Lennon to they wanted to believe that John was under the spell of Yoko somehow. Right. Which as we've noted on many occasions it was not actually the case. Right. They make some of those comments here Paul's reference to John being thin, Jerry Harris is not thin here.
0: <laughs>
2: right. And the macrobiotic diet, that wouldn't happen for a while.
0: <laughs> Paul was just remembering him from his fat Elvis days, I guess.
2: Relative to that, sure. <laughs> yeah. Paul offers up some, some tickets to the winning show at Madison Square Garden in, quote, two weeks time. No, it's not two weeks time. It's six weeks from April 24th.
0: Yeah, but that would sound weird.
2: Although it is real, Paul did apparently give him a pair of tickets.
0: In the script, there's banter back and forth as if John didn't really know Paul's career at all. You know, oh, really? Is that that band you're in? You know, I mean, he's he's kind of teasing him with it, but he's not giving Paul anything at this point. We're heading for a dramatic moment.
2: First act really is kind of the two of them rarely circling around each other. (laughs) Like cats. Yeah. Boxers in the early rounds of a fight. (laughs) we're not going to go in for the punches yet, but you're just going to see kind of where we're at. The one name that comes up nowhere in this film that I'm sure the real John Paul talked about, Alan Klein. (laughs) Yeah, right. Although apparently Paul was and remains very worried about being sued by Klein. Well, I can see why. There was a Linda McCartney biopic after Linda passed, and they even changed Klein's name in it. They told the story, but uh, they just... Change his name to something completely different. To
0: Ron Klein, yeah. Klein was litigious, you know, so he would sue.
2: They kind of go back and forth, and then they both decide they've had enough of that, and John goes off to make some tea. Right. There's a segment before that where they're meditating. Really? That's where you decided to go with this? (laughs) And I'm not even sure how it moves the story forward, necessarily. Right.
0: Well, we're going to go through all the stuff that they're into, you know. The pot scene was...
2: Particularly amusing, yes. Yes. Paul does reveal that he's carrying... pulls out a baggie and, you know, rolls a joint and he and John share it. Yeah. So, yeah, pot and meditation. John goes off to make some tea and Paul goes off and plays the white piano. Of course it's the white piano. (laughs) Right. Michael Lindsay Hogg films it so you do not see Aiden Quinn's hands except for a cut-in. Aiden Quinn does not know how to play the piano.
0: Most actors don't. <laughs>
2: but I mean, he doesn't even know how to fake it very well, apparently. So, no,
0: there's a couple of shots where when they show both Paul and John at the piano bench where you can see their hands,
2: they also make reference to John holding on to his Japa beads. Right. Meditation in India. We're going to throw in all these points that people will associate with them.
0: Right. You know, I have to mention at this point that I thought the music in it was really interesting and and pretty good.
2: The Tumbling Tumbleweeds, whoever that is actually performing that, they do a pretty good job. Yeah.
0: The same at the end.
2: Bought in an all-night diner off of Route 9, see?
0: (laughs) He, uh, walked into the diner, picked up, uh, L.A. Times, that somebody had left sitting on the table.
1: Next to a half-empty glass of beer and a 50-cent tip. Ordered a chicken-fried steak with... Mashed potatoes and don't skimp on the gravy. From a fat waitress who had a cold sore and, uh... Said her name was Boris. Boris? Boris. Doris. <laughs> Said her name was Doris and asked where he was from and which way he was headed, see? What's this, then?
0: Tumbling
3: tumbling.
0: Keep on drifting. along with the tumbling. Tumbling.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's the bit that I like the most. Yeah. And that actually does sound like Aiden Quinn to me. <laughs> right. It sounds like he ad-libbed over the track. Yeah. Going off into sort of a Hey Jude like refrain, but it wasn't just
0: their parts of it though. I thought the incidental music in the film was pretty good.
2: Was very well done, yeah.
0: yeah. Never the Beatles, but certainly beatlesque, but in an interesting way, not uh sort of the common uh 1964 Beatles.
2: Not what you usually get when you're trying to imply the Beatles.
0: Yes. So I give that a big thumbs up.
2: And I also like they have them doing a little play acting goon show type skit with John Wayne voices. I thought that was pretty well done. Yeah. And that seemed fairly realistic to the characters of the actual gentleman.
0: Yeah. That little part reminded me of John's tapes.
2: Maurice Dupont, a Jean Provocateur du Jour. R.E.T. Yeah, exa- exactly.
1: Maurice Dupont, speaking to you from the Hotel Foyer, March the 22nd, 1978. I went to my local, a first recruiter, and now I am forced to let my government hear my story. Ironically, this recruiter mentioned that he was in Laos in 68 and 69, and was glad that he didn't get killed.
2: Then Paul starts talking about his dreams and how John has been coming to him in his dreams. A little bit of foreshadowing, I guess. But, you know, he does mention Mal and he mentions his mom and uh, some of the other people. At that point, Mal would have only been dead three months.
0: Yeah. That would be kind of an accurate, hey, you know, when somebody is on your mind, you dream about them. Or can
2: Then a discussion which is based on some things that John actually wrote about Linda, that he never actually saw Linda as being the type of person that Paul would end up with.
0: Paul had been dating Jane Asher for five years. Uh, I always thought you'd end up with some nice little English girl. And Right. (laughs) That
2: leads to another argument between them um, about Paul asks him, what do you actually think about my music? And it's like... You're making uh, cotton candy, man, reminiscent of the famous, quote, pizza and fairy tales. Right. Where supposedly John told Paul that, you know, you're just off pizza and fairy tales, Macca. That's right. where the bootleg got his name from.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in total, you know, the movie draws from a variety of interviews and books that were coming out. And takes bits and pieces of reporting around that time and the issues that they had and put them into this story. I don't know if these conversations ever took place. We know they didn't because, you know, there was no one else there.
2: The emotional impact, you know, you may have had one of these at a time, but you're not going to have, what, there's five or six big confrontations during the course of this 90-minute film. Exactly. Paul always likes to talk about the day when the hurricane came through and they both got terribly drunk and had this big sloppy conversation. That just sort of keeps happening here. Right. But again, that it makes sense given that you're trying to put all this into a single day. Yeah, The fellow who wrote this was putting together a composite of the relationship between the two. And it works more or less... On that front, it's probably Mm -hmm. a little bit more dramatic than it ever actually was, but I I think it works pretty well.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: That argument causes Paul to go running off saying, fine, you you don't want me anymore. I'm going to get out of here. And so he leaves, and then once he gets down to to the limo, he turns right back around. Again, bemused, dormant. Oh, oh, he's coming back. Right. That's nice.
0: And then Paul gets up to the top and John is outside of his door putting on his shoes and there's a I can't quit you baby kind of moment. Very
2: much, yes.
0: You know, Paul comes up and just kind of looks frustrated and starts to walk away and John's like, "Where
2: well, are you going?"
0: and and him back. So, it's very much that sort of uh, moment.
2: After John shows reluctance of You mean out there?
0: <laughs> right.
2: We know that John was actually quite happy to walk New York City at the time. Yeah. I don't know why he would have had the, any big issues at that point. They donned some disguises, some uh, little round sunglasses, very revolver-esque.
0: Right, bow hats
2: And fake mustaches.
0: <laughs> right.
2: John is wearing the Elvis badge, which he did actually get from Mal Evans in real life.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Nice little touch, I thought.
0: this is kind of funny because... Their look in 1973 would have been really out of place, and not disguises at all.
2: When he's in the getup, Aiden Quinn looks more like Paul than he does at any <laughs> other point in the film.
0: Right, right.
2: Uh, there's a little bit of interaction with with a fella uh, trying to give out flyers. I, I like that. <laughs> Save the sea lions. I tried, but they wouldn't listen.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Well, it's one for the money two for the
0: show
3: three to get ready now go cat go but don't
2: you i say shall we stroll through the park with motion. Yeah, would you like to help save the sea lions no, thanks. would you like to help save the sea lions no, Tried, like the but they wouldn't let listen let an ask dialogue there right uh then they get down to the park there's, there's a reggae band in the park and they kind of jam out to this reggae band.
0: Right. Which, of course, gives them another opportunity to have them smoking pot.
1: Here, try some of this. Let you feel the music. Make you feel heaven on earth. Now, you go ahead. take a look about for yourself. you some someday our friend if you think you need it.
2: Yeah, got me that. Jamaican pot, so good stuff.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> that might explain John's behavior. <laughs>
2: so what happens from there? We see uh two cops on horseback riding up to break up this thing. It wouldn't it wouldn't have been illegal to be playing music in the park. No, not at all. I mean, now, granted, I guess they ran because of the uh, substances.
0: Yes, that's probably true. You know, a disguise of that sort usually basically tries to make people not look twice at you.
2: Whereas this is something that people would pay attention.
0: Two New York cops coming up, and neither one of them said, Oh my gosh, you're John Lennon, or you're Paul McCartney. (laughs) This is true. You know, Paul McCartney has the biggest song in the United States and neither cop goes, wow, you're Paul McCartney.
2: John was actually a big supporter of the NYPD, even at that point in time. Yeah, he donated lots of money to the police department. Right. In 79, he bought a whole slew of... Bulletproof vests, Kevlar jackets for the... Yeah. So, you know, the reaction of uh, Jared Harris's John is pretty different from what the real one and probably would have uh, been like right and based on his
0: previous experience with the cops realizing they're british cops but i don't know really that you'd uh make a reference to jack boots to a policeman at that point that you know he yeah,
2: and the Nazi saluted yeah that was just a pretty... little bit too much i think i did like the fake paul's reaction to it you know, my friend here he's a little bit thick in the head <laughs> right just give me some truth
3: you fellows wouldn't be indulging in any illegal substances now, would you?
1: Oh,
0: nine. Nine. Just uh, enjoying some good music. That's... Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Your officers are not uh, followers of contemporary music, huh? Um?
3: You have a problem with authority, pal?
1: No, sir, officer Nine.
3: Uh, I, he has problems, uh, but uh, they're... How you say in English, he uh, a bit thick? Uh... Uh, he's, uh, um,
0: medication I give him.
3: Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, whatever the fuss was here has ended. Yes. You two keep out of trouble. Yes, sir.
1: I wouldn't venture too far off into the park if I was you. Oh, why? A lot of crazies out there, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Come on, Francis. Hello. Cheerio, Francis.
2: So the cops write off and it is revealed that Paul was still carrying. Yes. Something which wouldn't have been good for either of them had they been caught. No,
0: that would make the press. John Lennon and Paul McCartney in Central Park
2: carrying. The write-off dialogue from the cops was uh, just a touch too on the nose. I, you know, I wouldn't venture too far from the park. There are crazies out there. Yeah. Eh, I didn't need that. Dun, 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 dun. John, of course, associates that with the death of his mother. And it's like, another one of those, that may have been just slightly too much. Yeah. Then another one of those, oh, we're going to throw in some Beatle references, uh, John and Paul have a discussion on trepanning. Right. We know that John actually did consider it in 68, 69, that John and Yoko thought that was something they might do really before Primal came along. Right. And that was
0: Paul's response to it. Hey, you go ahead and do it and then get back to me and let me know how it goes.
2: I like the joke. What do you do when it rains? (laughs) Yeah. That's really fully the end of Act One. We move on to Act Two, which is at one of John's favorite restaurants. This is probably a stand in for a Cafe La Fortuna in New York City, which was a place where John and Yoko really did go a lot and where John really did order dark chocolate.
0: Yeah. Instead, this is what? Luigi's?
1: Luigi! Hey, John! Welcome! Have a seat, uh, see? Your uh, table is empty. Thank you. How's business, Luigi? I can't complain. Yeah. How about a couple of cappuccinos to start Oh, with? all right, by me, eh? yeah? Yeah? Yeah. Harry, cappuccino, due. This is an old friend of mine, Ramon. How do you
3: do? It's a um, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. Um, I want to
0: wash up my hands. It's
1: um, through that door on the left. Thank you. So what else can I bring for you this evening? Uh, Have you got any more of that dark Italian chocolate from the other day? <laughs> of course. We'll have some of that. Very good. Relax. I'll be back.
0: They don't seem to be doing great. And I think it's because of the service. You know, the guy comes up, asks John what he wants. John orders chocolate, never even says to Mr. McCartney, Can I get you anything?
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is true. The only other people in the restaurant are. Who they hired to play these roles
0: <laughs> right. Right. no extras really
2: <laughs> they make a revolution number nine reference
3: take this brother may it serve you well this is some macrobiotic diet you know. yeah well we're all
2: hypocrites at heart aren't we right so they're in slightly better shape as far as the relationship between them goes the, the The event in the park seems to have cleared up a little bit of the uh, struggle that they were having having at the beginning of the film relating to each other. In this
0: story, you had two fans, one being a a single young man, and then there was the couple. And John's reaction to both of them in the film clearly bothers Paul.
2: That was not how John reacted to the fans. We, no. we have that all that footage from 1980 where, you know, John wouldn't throw off any sort of Beatles thing with a joke.
0: Right. It did remind me, Howard Kalin wrote a book, and he discusses, after Happy Together was a hit, went over to England and an episode with one of the members in his band and John. And John sometimes could be pretty cutting and and cruel to random people, basically. So I didn't feel like that was completely out of character. But for the most part, John would be kind to the innocents. (laughs) And that's all this guy was. It was a Beatle fan.
2: Yeah, Pete Shotton actually talks about that even as early as, you know, 64, 65, that they would go out, and John would just say the worst things to people, but he would say it in an even tone of voice, and he would say it with a smile, and they would never notice what he's actually <laughs> saying to them. Yeah. Oh, yes, hello, madam. You know, you're a big, fat pig. <laughs> right. I actually kind of like the incident with the first one with the kid where it's really John just sort of stirring him up and again the kid doesn't notice that this guy across the way is Paul McCartney never never once
1: do you know what I heard on the radio I heard that Paul McCartney and Wings have the number one song in America right silly love songs yeah well what do you think of that do you agree with that well it's not really up to me what are you talking about? Of course it is. You have an opinion, don't you? Well, yeah. Yeah. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, right? yeah. You do. Uh-huh. Well, let's hear it. Okay. Well. Do you we... think that "City Love" songs by Paul McCartney at Wings is the number one song in America? Well, if if you mean do I like it, then I'd say, yeah, you know, sure. You know, it's all right. I guess it's, it's okay. I think he could do a lot better. Oh. So uh, you wouldn't personally regard it as the number one song in America? No, I wouldn't call it that. But, you know, obviously enough people are buying it and and requesting it at the radio station and that to, you know, to make it number one. Mm -hmm. Well, let that be a lesson to you. Yeah. What? Your opinions worth shite.
0: (laughs) Right. John does confess, I'm just playing with you, you know and then give some advice.
1: Look, you know, just go out, have a good night, tell your girlfriend. You have a girlfriend, yeah? Sort of. (laughs) Well, you tell your sort of girlfriend that you sort of met one of the Beatles and he turned out to be just as much of a bastard as anybody else. Maybe more.
2: So the other couple, (laughs) the older couple who have been staring at them throughout their time sitting at this table, and they've been making reference to, when do they get the nerve to come up and come over? And you know when they come over, he's going to say, oh, it's my Lil over here that loves you and your music.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then Kurt makes the faux pas, can you sing a few bars of yesterday?
2: (laughs) That just throws John completely out of sorts. Right. He, he says that you should, you should put on your wife's wig and uh, lick my lingam, as yeah the dialogue goes. Oh, they're going to censor you for that. Um, you should be ashamed of yourself. Well, I am, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course, they leave the restaurant, and there's a long shot of Luigi looking at John. You can almost hear, see him shaking his head, but he doesn't. But then it goes on talking about yesterday John and Paul discuss it
2: I've always hated you for writing that song
0: right I could see him saying that taken in the right tone because he said in an interview that what are Paul's best no I never wish I'd written it
2: and on their walk back to the Dakota they are intercepted by a, a uh, busty young Juan lady
0: <laughs> oh you noticed that did you <laughs> I was looking at the dog <laughs> <laughs>
2: She recognizes Paul Right Man, you are gorgeous
0: <laughs> Right Well, she first approaches John I mean, that's the one she stops for And then realizes that Paul's with him And
2: Because and that, John had not put his, his disguise back on you
0: Right And there's some Beatlemania By an, an older woman And not older I mean, she's young But not
2: Late 20s, I think from Yeah
0: A successful
2: late 20s <laughs> So they get back to Dakota, and for no reason at all, they decide to go up on the roof. Right. Brian Epstein reference. (laughs) Right. Uh, I like that John was the one who lived in the apartment, and he didn't know how to operate the elevator, (laughs) the freight elevator to the roof.
0: Yeah. I think it's in reference to the idea that John was not capable somehow of some of the simple things, how to operate some things. That might have been in the Golden Book. I don't know.
2: The fellow who put in his stereo frequently commented about having to go back and show John how to do things. Right.
3: It was February 12th, 1979. Paul Gorsh was a part-time driver for an electronics shop. At noon, he and a friend arrived at the Dakota posing as TV repairman. Paul carried a copy of John Lennon's first book and a bogus service order to get him in the door.
2: J&J Electronics, we're here to see Jay, uh,
1: Jay Lennon.
2: Is he expecting you? It's right here on my We route. went up
0: to the doorman, you know, I showed him the service order. I was acting like I, you know, because I had wrote Jay Lennon, not John Lennon. I wanted to act like I was totally oblivious to who we were going in the apartment of. You know, he didn't even blanket it. It was perfect to him.
3: It was Paul Gorish's lucky day. By coincidence, John Lennon was having problems with his VCR. Four days later, Paul scheduled another appointment with Lennon's secretary. She had no idea that Lennon no longer had a problem with his VCR. He
2: simply purchased a new one. We all know about John Lennon and driving cars, so it makes some sense. Right.
0: You got to get into those references however you can.
2: So they go up on the roof. Again, another opportunity for a big dramatic scene between the two of them. I guess this is really supposed to be the final let's have it all out.
0: Yeah, the, the emotional climax to this kind of, of of this whole day for them would be the big conversation. And that's what this kind of is. And it bothers me that the writer has basically put Paul into the position of being John's psychiatrist and saying things to him about, I see a a little boy, you know, who's been abandoned by his father. I mean, it's like, oh my God, really?
2: We're back to my complaints about Nowhere Boy. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lot of that same sort of dime store psychoanalysis going on there. Uh, But I agree with you. Not only are they psychoanalyzing, they're having the words come out of Paul's mouth.
1: (sighs) All right, Paul. You want to play that game, do you? Take a good look, tell me what you see. I see a beautiful little boy whose mother
0: says goodbye. I see the same little boy blaming himself for his father's mistakes, telling himself that everything is his fault.
1: I see this little boy believing that the world is a dangerous place and that there's nobody you can depend on to protect you. So you grow up trying to
0: pretend that ordinary little things don't scare the hell out of you, but they do. At times when John's kind of trying to explain where he's at, Paul comes off as almost simplistic, which he is not. You know, things like he comments about, oh, you're a house husband in a way that kind of is condescending. Almost like he doesn't understand John's quest for normalcy. I mean, this is a man who's come over. He's going to bring his entire family and put them in a home so he can fly back and be with his family while he tours the United States. I mean, he understands that quest. So I'm just surprised that they kind of put it like. I mean, they put it in context of Paul not understanding why John had given up his contract, why he wasn't in the game anymore.
2: Well, and the conversation winds its way around to the Lost Weekend. I I thought that was kind of a little bit disingenuous as well. The, The whole end of the Lost Weekend is a much more complicated matter than we knew. Now, maybe we didn't necessarily know it at the time, but... I mean, what we've learned in the interim, Paul is one of the ones who actually really got John back in Yoko's good graces. Right. He went to Yoko and had this conversation. I kind of wish that there had been a way to work whatever was known of that at the time into the film, into the dialogue here. They just play it off here. Oh, John was a drunk in in L.A. when he was hanging out there with May Pang. Right. They make it just one giant blackout, which it certainly wasn't.
0: That way they could avoid the whole conversation of John would have known that Paul was involved. Paul came out to L.A. to talk to him about it. So by completely erasing his memory of it, they don't have to deal with the fact that John and Paul's relationship was not on and off and on and off. You know, it, it was an ongoing thing beyond just the business.
2: Well, and that's why I don't necessarily like the fact that well we don't get any Alan Klein mentioned anywhere in this film you know um we're going to talk to Alan cozen in a couple of weeks here the one of the main things i get out of the mccartney book is that in real life that was paul's main sticking point it wasn't the other beatles it wasn't apple it was i want nothing to do with klein
0: right well i think he said that in effect in interviews when he talked about how do I get out of this situation, and the only way to do it was to sue the other Beatles. He, that's the only way he could extract himself from Klein. I agree with you that there was talk going on. The contract was up in 73, I believe, and the, yeah. this was 76. So, And when did Beatlemania come out? The
2: music? That would be a few years later. That would be like 77. So they weren't quite into those lawsuits just yet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You can trace Beatles history by going (laughs) through their lawsuits.
0: With a lawsuit here and a lawsuit there.
2: (laughs) The denouement on the roof is nice, but it's a little bit simplistic. I see my old friend looking back at me, still putting himself and me through hell. Yeah. It is certainly a summary of what
0: went on. And that argument takes out John's view, which was Paul was too acquiescent to his dad and his dad's feelings and his normal family, as it were.
2: That is true, yes. John would have
0: had a response to all this.
2: The other thing that comes out of this conversation, Paul, in probably the most genuinely McCartney-like response, if it's not fun, why do it? Talking about, was it Nilsson who offered him PCP? I don't know. (laughs) He was offered PCP at the house in Los Angeles. Ah. What is it? It's elephant tranquilizers. Well, is it fun doing it? Well, not really. Well, if it's not fun, why? Yeah. That is a very McCartney-esque response. And again, I think that may have been a slightly modified version of something he said in an interview.
0: During the course of the conversation, I noticed at one point Paul goes, and what's wrong with that? I'd like to know. And I thought, oh, my gosh, really? (laughs) You didn't do that.
2: Sometimes screenwriters cannot resist.
0: That's definitely one of them.
2: (laughs) And so the evening ends with John apologizing. Again, something the real Lennon probably never would have done. I'm sorry. For what? For being such a tosser. (laughs) Me too, John. Me too. And what does that mean? And so, that Paul's a tosser or
0: that he's sorry that John's a tosser?
2: <laughs> well, no, uh, uh John is saying to Paul that he's sorry for being such a tosser.
0: Right. But when Paul says me too, is is Paul oh. apologizing <laughs> for being the same?
2: I I took that as um as Paul agreeing that John was a tosser. <laughs> I see.
0: I see. <laughs> Well, then they left out the fist fight that <laughs> occurred right after that.
2: <laughs> okay. So, so then the, the, it is now apparently 10.30 or I guess 11.30 uh, Eastern time. They, they found their way back down to Dakota. They're, they're lying there kind of sleepy on the couch uh, watching SNL. Right. And as I mentioned up front, No Samurai Taylor with Buck Henry was a completely different episode. Buck Henry was the host. Raquel Welch was the host on April 24th, 1976.
0: This has John and Paul on the couch, uh, whereas in reality, Yoko and Linda were in the kitchen fixing tea.
2: So there you go. The Lauren Michaels bit comes on. And as you know, it was the actual Lauren Michaels bit.
0: Yes. The payoff to the skit, for those who have not seen it, is that, you know, he prefaces it with the the Beatles, the interest in the Beatles, and people have been offered money. But, hey, NBC has authorized me. And, of course, that indicates, well, NBC's got boatloads of money. And then the payoff is, here's a check for $3,000.
2: $3,000 being scale for musicians at that time. Yeah, right. And Lennon
0: just totally cracks up
1: a certified check for $3,000. Here it is. Can we can we uh, get a close-up of this, Dave? Which camera is it on? 3000 there. Ah. That's a good one. Now, here it is, as you Sorry, can see. Very kindly, it is a check made out to you,
0: the Beatles, for $3,000. That's the joke, and he totally gets it. And I thought the scripted reaction of Lennon to this is probably pretty accurate. I mean, he he really liked the the joke.
2: I also liked the part, the very end of that. You can split it up however you like. <laughs> yeah. You can give Ringo less if you if you want. Yes.
1: If you want to give Ringo less? That's up to you. I'd rather not. I love it Ringo. <laughs> I'm
2: sincere about this. If it uh, helps you to reach a decision yeah. to reunite, well then it's a worth the investment. It's a worth agents, the investment. You know where I could be just think about it, okay? Thank
0: you. That was probably the most accurate in my mind as to how it all went down. Except for Yoko and Linda.
2: Yoko and Linda being there. And I do kind of wonder wonder what their response was. So whatever was like, oh, fine. Whatever they want to do.
0: If they were interested in doing it, they would be excited. I mean, John and Paul, going to go play together. Wow. You know?
2: Yeah, Linda certainly would have been. I, I don't I don't know what Yoko's response would have been.
0: I said she would have checked the book first.
2: <laughs> they did make reference to both the I Ching and astrological stuff earlier in the film before they went out into the park. And that was kind of cute. Right. The bit on SNL ends, and they get all excited. It's like, well, it's only what the whole world's been waiting for.
0: Right. Well, Paul has to be talked into it. You know, oh no! you know, what if we suck? You know, the, I mean, Paul likes the rehearsal. It's a little bit get back in nature, actually. <laughs> yes. John has to kind of talk him into it, which makes the end of this more poignant. But finally, Paul gets talked into it. But his guitar is downstairs. Why couldn't have stayed? Oh, well, I guess they were going to rehearse something. But he goes downstairs to get it.
2: Wakes uh, up his driver.
0: Right gets his guitar out of the trunk out of the boot open the boot and uh he goes back up and we don't see the concierge yeah. go oh my god paul's going up with his guitar
2: and while that's happening john runs into the bedroom of course as john told us in the playboy interview the guitar was actually hanging up behind the bed right. again uh really and that's not john's only guitar Right. Another cute little bit of dialogue. He, he picks it up, he strums it a couple of times. Ooh, I'll have to get Paul to tune that.
0: Yeah, right.
2: So the reason they've kind of decided to do this, John turns Paul's words back to him. Go do it. It'll be fun.
0: <laughs> right.
2: And then, of course, they have to have one more just slightly dramatic moment, also showing that they have fully made up at this point. You're coming back. Yeah. As Paul's leaving out the door to go get his guitar, like John actually thinks right. he would uh, abandon him. Because
0: I think Paul, during the course of this, says several times, I'm not leaving. Yeah. Because I guess that's John's biggest fear, you yeah. know, that he'll be abandoned by somebody else.
2: And when Paul makes it back up, Yoko has called. John is taking the call and he's sitting on the floor. That's actually pretty good,
0: because you recognize immediately, John, he's on the floor, there's an ashtray, There's he's playing with the cord. I mean, he has totally uh, created his little space for this call while Paul's been gone. And Paul can immediately see.
2: Yeah, is that a Michael Lindsay Hogg thing? Is he really kind of showing some of what he genuinely felt about uh, John and Paul? And who they were, and Yoko, by this little scene?
0: Well, the scene itself makes the point that Yoko was in the driver's seat uh, in Sean's life. And so it has her basically spoiling this moment of them going on Saturday Night Live when the fact was she was there. I mean, this is totally made up, but puts her kind of is responsible or John's feelings toward her responsible for us not having that SNL moment
2: it's the same story which we always get yoko broke up the beatles
0: you're right she did it again in this
2: well and even in real life people want to hang on to this idea that john was going to go down for the venus and mars session oh may pang tells us that john was going to book a flight and then he went back home to the Dakota. It's like that just doesn't work, right? It's entirely possible they might have gotten back together for Venus and Mars, but really, I just don't know what to say about that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and it's not mentioned in this film. <laughs>
2: well, because this version of John Lennon doesn't remember anything about what happened during the last weekend, right? It was all one giant blur to him.
0: It would have been easy to put a little exchange of dialogue where Paul goes, well how come he didn't come down to New Orleans? (laughs) Yeah,
2: Sort of as the postscript on it which kind of I guess serves as an apology to Yoko, although maybe not. You have Paul back in the car thinking about the day and he calls Linda. Linda? Can you hear me? I'm in the car. Yeah, listen,
3: so you'll never guess who I went to see yeah right yeah listen yeah i'll be there in 10 minutes i'll tell you all about it, it was unbelievable no no good
0: yeah okay right, right.
3: yeah i see you oh yeah. linda i love you
2: grown men they're in their relationships they're happy as they are stop saying all this stuff
0: <laughs> yeah i guess so
2: yeah so i mean you know all in all okay it's fiction we know it's friction yeah. they tell us it's fiction but does it serve to inform us in any way about the real natures of john and paul again not necessarily us because well We know all of that, but as someone who wants to know what were these guys actually like and what was their relationship actually like?
0: If that was the function of it, it's decent. It's not way out of character. If someone accepts that it's totally fiction, you know, they set it up as if, well, this occurred, and you could go online and look it up. Oh, yeah, it did occur. And so you might think, if you aren't delving very deeply, that this is how it went, and nothing about it is how it went. If that was made clearer, I think it would serve better, but on the whole, I think it did a decent job.
2: They do say that right up front. There's a disclaimer right at the very beginning. This film makes no attempt to document what may have occurred at such a meeting, a meeting between John and Paul. Rather, it is a work of fiction in appreciation of two blokes from Liverpool. Ugh. I'm not sure that that I like that wording. And the gifts that they gave us. They are telling us that this isn't real. It is all too easy to believe that, oh yeah, this is what actually happened. I mean, I would desperately love to know what actually went on at that meeting.
0: Yeah, I would too. I mean, they couldn't get Silly Love Songs, but so they could have said, nothing is real. You know.
2: As a film and as characters, these are two interesting guys. As characters. Characters based on John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they're interesting, but as we've noted, it deviates from reality. Yeah. I think Get Back is still a better representation of who they actually were. Oh, for sure. I mean, obviously it's real, but (laughs) even within just having edited pieces of that month. Yeah, for sure. But it was entertaining and... It would actually make a very good stage play. Yeah. You know, considering most of it takes place in three sets. Well, there you go. That's just my thought on the matter. What's Sid Bernstein doing? <laughs> well, he's no longer with us, sadly. Uh, there you go. Hey, Lauren Michaels. You're going to try <laughs> it from SNL here in the not-too-distant future.
0: You're always looking Maybe for Maybe you punk. can get
2: Paul to write some original music for it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like Paul has said that he had liked the film. Right. And like, as I mentioned up front, what he said fairly recently is that it was kind of the ideal version of how that meeting went. Well, I, you know, maybe he really did have at least some of these uh, emotional questions that may or may not have gotten answered through the years. Right. And then as the post-postscript to it, you know, we mentioned up front that Paul and Linda came back the next day. John kind of brushed them off saying, you know, hey, call first next time. And that was that. There may be at least one other occasion.
0: And there may be even more. I mean, the truth is, is if they decided they were going to get together, didn't want anybody to know and planned that nobody would know, then that would be possible.
2: I think it's worth watching. It is available for free on Vimeo. Find it, watch it if you have an hour and a half and are looking for something to watch. I wouldn't quite call it fun, but it's amusing and it's interesting. Yes. All right, so we will be back next week with a new show. That's what I heard. (laughs) And it will still be 2023 for another 51 weeks.
0: (laughs) Well, that's something to look forward to.
2: (laughs) Talk to you soon. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Beast Famin Studios, San Francisco, California.
1: Did you see a film directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg mm. called The Two of Us, or just Two of Us, around about 2000?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, where well, there's a John and a Paul, played by actors. Yeah. Aiden, Aiden, Aiden Quinn.
1: Quinn played me, I remember, yeah. Yeah, and Jared Harris, yeah. he played John. And it's a fictionalised account of one of the visits that you made around 1976 to mm. John's New York apartment.
3: Mm. I did see it, actually, yeah. And... What was okay about that was that at the beginning of the film, it said, you know, John and Paul met on such and such a date in New York. And this is us imagining what might have happened. It's pure fiction. They did it like a disclaimer at the front. So I thought, well, that's okay, because I can get into this. And I mean, I must say, I enjoyed it. I thought, I wish
1: that had happened. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't happen quite like that. Right. Well, in the, the synopsis, McCartney arrives unannounced at Lennon's Dakota apartment. They exchange small talk and biting insults. They consume some marijuana and eventually end up noodling around on the piano. As the evening wears down, they watch Saturday Night Live together, and Mm. by chance, witness producer Lorne Michaels offering the Beatles a laughably low sum, $3,000, to reunite on his show. Mm -hmm. Impulsively they toy with the idea of speeding to Rockefeller Center to perform a few songs that very night. So what aspects of that vague synopsis ring true?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, as with all of these stories, it's kind of true, but it's not. Mm -hmm. So I did visit John, and Lorne didn't come on the telly. Lorne had come on the telly the week before, and John told me about it. He said, oh, Saturday Night Live, I love this, you know. He said, oh, did you hear that Lorne Michaels had and he explained the thing to me. And John said, We should go down there. Now he said, It's live. He said, We should go down. This was the week after. So it wasn't as if Lorne was just asking and we went down. And so for five minutes, we were like, Yeah, let's go down. That'd be great. What a hoot. And then we went, No, let's not. And we didn't. So it was kind of true. But uh, the facts have been mangled to protect the innocent.
1: I guess one of the intriguing things, though, for fans was the idea that you guys were still on good terms around that time, after the breakup of the Beatles.
3: Yeah, that was one of my great blessings out of the whole thing. uh, uh, Because during the Beatles' breakup, it was very difficult. And I was getting blamed for it all. And I knew I wasn't to blame. But the more you protest... You know, methinks the lady protests too much. And it's like, ah, uh, uh, I see I'm in a trap here. You know, it was it was kind of difficult. But over the years, like I say, I would drop in at John's place. I mean, then I was the kind of person that didn't know that, like, particularly in places like New York, you call ahead. Uh-huh. Oh, because I'm from Liverpool. I don't know. You just show up. All right, John, how are you doing? You know. But he did say to me, you know, do us a favor next time, you know, let us know you're coming. Anyway, so I would go and see him a few times and we would talk on the phone. If I was in England, he was in America. And we had some great ordinary conversations Mm. that were very sort of endearing. There was a bread strike over here. And so I'd gone round to the local bakers and catched some yeast off him. So I was baking bread at home. And I, I'm on a phone call to John. He said, what are you up to? I said, I've been baking some bread. He said, oh, yeah, I'm getting into breaking bread. So we exchanged our recipes and our methods for making bread. So it was lovely. You know, this was how it had been when we met with just a couple of guys just chundering on about insignificant stuff. So I was very happy to have um, got back our friendship, which the Beatles' breakup had nearly ruined but in actual fact, it all calmed down and, and in the
1: end I was friends with all the guys. The film, The Two of Us, uses your relationship with John to illustrate opposing ways of looking at the world. Mm. And it casts you as the light-hearted optimist and John as someone who sees pain and suffering everywhere and thinks it's the duty of an artist to tell the truth about that, to sort of wake people up. Mm. How much truth is there in that characterization?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's very general, but I think, I think there's a lot of truth in it. And I think, looking back on it, I think that was one of the great strengths of our writing partnership and of the Beatles. Each of us had a very strong character that was different from the others. Mm -hmm. So, as you say, you know, if John and I are writing a song, I mean, I'm actually in the room now where we wrote this song I'm going to mention, which is called Getting Better, a Beatles song. And it was like, I was singing, it's getting better all the time. And John's going, it couldn't get much worse. So, you know, he would provide the sort of darkness to my sort of optimistic song. And it worked. It wasn't always like that, but there was this thing that was balance, was created by his attitude. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds
1: to keep going turned up nice again.